Hello and welcome to Fraud Talk, the ACFE's monthly podcast. I'm Rihanna Scoggins, the Community Manager for the ACFE, and today I'm joined by Todd McDonald, CPA, and Garth Leonard, CFE, from Validate Financial. Todd is the founder of Validate Financial and has decades of experience working to clean up and turn around complex accounting and economic situations. Garth is the Vice President of Strategic Accounts at Validate Financial and is a senior technology business leader with over 20 years of product and operational experience. How are you both doing today? Excellent. Doing well, thank you. Awesome. Great to hear. Um, Well, thank you both for taking the time out of your day to call in and chat. One of my favorite questions to ask guests is how they got started in the anti-fraud space and how they got to where they are now in their career. Todd, do you want to start? Yeah, you bet. Uh, So I'm a former auditor uh, with one of the big four firms, Um, left public accounting to get into operational financial roles at at mostly tech companies, um, some really big, some uh, more startup. And then about uh, 15 years ago, took a big detour into bankruptcy, restructuring, out-of-court workouts, um, kind of special operations projects all around the country. And uh, my real big immersion into the forensic space uh, came out of a, a Ponzi scheme, a Chapter 11 bankruptcy case that quickly unveiled itself to be one of the larger Ponzi schemes in the country. And uh, I had a couple of years worth of work uh, forensically putting the books and records back uh, together for uh, the bankruptcy trustee process. Uh, bankruptcy trustees responsible for maximizing recovery for the benefit of creditors, effectively returning as much uh, money back to investors left holding the bag. And uh, we needed to really understand where money had come and gone through a complex series of, of organizations uh, and had uh, just an absolute ton of work to do forensically to, to put together the books and records. And that, that forensic effort really um, was the, the hub from which the, the case and ultimately the recovery uh, uh, was based off of. Interesting. Awesome. I'm very excited to get more uh, info on that case as we, we continue our conversation. Um, Garth, how about you? How did you get your start? Yeah, so I've always, uh, throughout my professional career, worked kind of at the intersection of technology and business, uh, mostly in the finance space, specifically capital markets. Uh, In one of my last roles there, I actually uh, developed a product uh, that was involved in the analysis of large data sets and uh, meeting with Todd and his co-founder, Chris McCall, during discussions, you know, we found out that what they had designed with Validate was almost identical to what I had done in another area. So I was pretty excited by the opportunity in the in the fraud and forensic space and uh, joined the, the Validate team at that point. Awesome. Interesting. So this is uh, sort of your first endeavor into the anti-fraud space professionally. Uh, yeah, I've been at it a few years now, but uh, yeah, in, in, uh, overall in my career, that's absolutely true. Awesome. Good to hear. Um, So 
You both recently co-authored a post for our blog, ACFE Insights, which thank you for that. Um, this blog was titled, The Golden Era of Fraud Investigations is Upon Us, but it relies on better financial e-discovery. What inspired you to write this post now? Well, we've really had an incredible uh, and unprecedented in, in recent times bull run uh, in the market. Mm -hmm. um, we've had, and there's signs of that really uh, starting to, to falter. I mean, we've got uh, lots of press out there regarding the inflation that we're current, currently experiencing. Uh, at its peak, used cars were up 40% um, from a couple of years ago. We've seen gas prices up 100% in the last 20 months. Groceries are up 20%. Fertilizer for ag uses up 100%, uh, largely exacerbated by the Russia-Ukraine crisis. There's a potential food crisis coming, uh, as recently outlined in The Economist. Um, and then we've got all kinds of ongoing supply chain issues and labor shortages on the supply chain, whether it's rail, air, trucking, shipping, ports. Um, we've seen an ongoing uh, supply chain issue in large part due to COVID, but continuing, uh, you know, several years after the onset of COVID, and there doesn't seem to be any real good news from that front. So lots of things contributing to inflation, which will continue to add pressure to the Fed to increase uh, interest rates. Um, there's also a tremendous amount of liquidity in the market and a tremendous pressure uh, to invest, but there's really no bargains out there. If you look at uh, private equities and stocks, um, they've been recently trading at uh, 40 times price earnings multiple. And if you look historically, that's been averaged right around uh, 17 times uh, earnings. So we're, we've been well above double historical price, uh, stock prices as measured uh, by earnings. Real estate uh, cap rates have been at historical lows, largely fueled by the, the very low interest rates that we've all been experiencing the last 10 years or so. From a, a housing standpoint, uh, Case-Shiller index, uh, that's been on a consistent climb in terms of household income uh, spent as a percentage of, of total income for housing and related cost, and, and we've seen a big acceleration since the pandemic. We're starting to see that come down a little bit, um, but it's been an incredible run in terms of the real estate valuations. Uh, and with those increasing interest rates that we're now seeing and appreciation with property taxes and the cost of homeowners associations, if you're in a condo or a, a townhouse where those are applicable, um, all of those been contributing to an increased uh, cost of home ownership by up, up to 50% even before uh, appreciation, which, you know, the last 12 months or so or in 2021 was up almost 20% year over year nationally. So all asset classes are extremely expensive and uh, all, all runs uh, with massive appreciation ultimately end. Yes, definitely. I think that feel like the the word of the past couple of years has been unprecedented and <laughs> I don't think uh, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon well thank you for that insight um, in the blog you cite that there's a changing macroeconomic climate and um, I think this goes a lot 
with what you just said. Um, and it means that we're about to see a lot of fraud cases uncovered as well. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So um, taking a historical look, look back, we are uh, long overdue for a correction or a recession by historical trends. In, on average, it's about eight years between uh, recessions or corrections in the market. We had them in, uh, looking back just over the last 50 years, we had them in 1973, 81, 1990, uh, 2001, the dot-com crash, the 08 uh, uh, financial crisis. And we're at almost double, we're at 14 years um, since the last onset of a correction. And uh, so we're at almost double the amount of time that is typically passed uh, between those corrections. Um, frauds are always happening, but generally they require a recession or a liquidity and or a liquidity crisis to be unveiled. That Ponzi scheme I was referencing earlier uh, was the Meridian Fund Ponzi scheme. That didn't unravel until the 2008-2009 liquidity crisis, where the, the uh, promoter of the funds, the perpetrator of, of the Ponzi, was no longer able to successfully recruit new investors to pay off old investors. Same thing with the Madoff. Those things all happened and unveiled themselves right around that 08 to 2010-2011 uh, timeframe. Um, right now, that, that pressure to, to invest is intense when we're looking at 8, 9, 10% inflation rates, just let, letting your money sit in the bank account, doing nothing, um, and, and implicitly losing uh, purchasing power uh, by 8 to 10% a year is, is very difficult to watch. And so investors are looking for options. And the message that, that fraudsters provide like secured assets or uh, monthly paid interest um, is gonna strike a chord now more than ever. And they've had 14 years uh, of, of markets that, that really had a lot of capital in them. Ultimately, investigations are a counter-cyclical business. Um, when the economy goes down, uh, you become aware of, of frauds. Um, and most, you know, there's a ton of folks in this space that have uh, retired, um, whether it's bankruptcy, uh, restructuring, trustee services, forensic accountants. And we haven't really seen a big wave of 30 somethings uh, with experience. Um, you know, they were a, a 30 year old was was a, a teenager uh, back when the last economic crisis uh, hit. So um, ultimately, I think Warren Buffett sums it up best as he often does, you know, only when the tide goes out, do you, do you only when the tide goes out, do you discover who's been swimming naked? <laughs> Forensics is a counter cyclical business. And um, we're expecting that there's going to be incredible demand um, in the next several years. Exactly, exactly. Um, I love that quote. That's, <laughs> that's great. Um, so that, that blog that you both co-authored together, a large part of it focuses on financial e-discovery. For those of us who may not know, what is financial e-discovery and when is it applicable? Yeah, so 
I think most people are familiar with the legal process of discovery, you know, the, the steps taken as, as part of working on a case to, to gather evidence and, and review it. Uh, it was probably late 1960s when the concept of electronically stored information or ESI uh, became relevant. At that point, yeah, you had the term e-discovery. Uh, these days, when we, we hear e-discovery, tend to think of email records or perhaps mobile phone records. Uh, increasingly, there's collaboration platforms uh, such as uh, Slack or Microsoft Teams. And really, by referencing financial e-discovery, we're, we're honing in on specific financial evidence that speaks to how money has moved. Uh, you can include internal books and records, but only if those are verified. Uh, really, third-party evidence, you know, uh, financial institution statements, such as bank statements, credit card statements, are critical components that can be trusted and relied upon uh, to ascertain exactly what's gone on. Uh, in terms of when it's applicable, you know, Todd's referenced about Ponzi schemes he's worked on. I mean, that's, that's a classic need uh, for financial e-discovery where you know you can't trust the internal books and records. Everything has to be kind of rewritten. You've got to follow the money. You've got to understand from investors' money that came in, how it was moved around and where that money went. Um, and that's really probably the highest bar of analysis and, you know, you take that concept of financial e-discovery and then apply that to more, more common use cases. So you, you start to look at things like bankruptcy proceedings or, or corporate restructuring. Uh, you know, you, when, you, when you land in these situations, time's uh, typically critical. You want very quick situational awareness and uh, the books and records can give you some of that. But you may also wish to just, again, go out to the cash and the bank accounts and, ascertain exactly does that match what's gone on with the books and records obviously they're they're open to uh, manipulation by financial controllers etc um, looking for fraudulent transfer preference payments that have been made so that's really that process of financial discovery in, in that situation it's also applicable with MA due diligence uh, if, if a company's saying these are our earnings you know you, you're looking for proof of earnings uh, family law uh, you can have a fairly vanilla, I guess, uh, marital dissolution. You have uh, two spouses, two separate accounts, one joint account, you know, no children, no businesses. It's, it's pretty straightforward, but you know, increasingly uh, the more complex arrangements, you can come in with you know, blended families, uh, children from previous relationships, uh, new children in that marriage, businesses that were up and running beforehand, new businesses that are created together. So at the time of separation, how do you determine what is community property versus separate? Uh, what does lifestyle analysis actually look like? You know, if there's uh, any accusations flying around, how, how do those get proven? And that's, again, a real uh, use case for that financial e-discovery. And a final one I'll mention is uh, actually in the government sector. Uh, we actually had a podcast on this earlier this year around Medicaid fraud. And every state in, in the U.S. Uh, has a Medicaid fraud control unit, or MFCU. They're usually part of the state attorney general's office. And they're, they're tasked with investigating provider fraud. And, you know, that's estimated in the tens of billions of dollars every year. So it's, it's a major problem that, that the U.S. faces. Uh, and that's really about, again, trawling through records, conducting that financially discovery uh, process. Definitely. Thank you for that. Um, so 
when we talk about financial e-discovery um, and the process and potential tools, we're not only talking about how the program or the process works, but the data sets that are being evaluated, right? Um, before it was mentioned, third-party sources. Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, just a, a quick preamble on this question. So um, in the legal profession, we've seen over the last uh, decade, decade and a half, a big evolution from a, a typical pyramid of, of staff with a, a partner sitting at the top of that and senior associates, junior associates, paralegals sitting underneath that partner. And at each level that you go down a, a bigger team. So one partner may have two, uh, two or three associates and a number of, of paralegals. That's really shifted to a more streamlined team with kind of a one-to-one -one relationship between uh, partners, associates, paralegals. And that's really in large part due to the sophistication of, of e-discovery systems and other technology tools that have allowed for things uh, instead of a brute force method where you're filling a large conference room with junior associates reviewing physical documents, we can now look for keyword searches and through more sophisticated tools associating relationships between disparate types of documentation, whether that's emails, company files, uh, Twitter feeds, um, et cetera. To date on the fraud and forensic side, we haven't, we have not yet really seen those big efficiencies in place. You'll have a, a senior expert or partner uh, sitting on top of an investigation with some uh, uh, trained uh, managers uh, and experienced team underneath them, and then potentially a very large group of folks inputting and transcribing information, whether it's off of bank statements or, or, or climb through uh, accounting records. We expect with the increased tools and technologies uh, that are now out there and available to, to really be able to streamline those teams by pulling out a significant amount of the, the raw transcription and uh, lower level of, of effort uh, at, at the bottom of getting competent and reliable data. Um, so, you know, in situations that Garth was addressing earlier, where following the money is super important. You're talking about bank statements, uh, ideally independently sourced, often by way of subpoena actions, um, integrating in accounting and ERP systems, it could be emails, phone records, tweets, other social media posts, et cetera. Um, so there, you're really talking about needing to incorporate lots of different data sets and at each step of the way, making sure those, those data sets are complete, that, that they're complete, accurate spoliation in uh, legal, uh, in litigation is always an issue and making sure that there's chain of custody and reliability uh, in that in that information as it's being analyzed and potentially submitted to to courts um, for for action uh, and and analysis. So on the on the bank statement um, side, you're also wanting to incorporate things like copies of checks, copies of deposit slips, and and related items, um, and ultimately move on to that next level of analysis of being able to trace funds, um, understand how money moved from account A to B to C, uh, analyzing transfers, 
et cetera. So um, yeah, lots of different data um, that, that needs to be incorporated in these investigations. Definitely. Um, I like how you mentioned the, the advancements in law and how you know, they've sort of streamlined their own process. And then we look at um, you know, our field and we have to remember that fraudsters are not waiting for us to advance, right? Sure. <laughs> um, you know, with, with new technology and um, you know, just new advancements in general in our society, there are going to be more holes that need to be filled. That's right. Looking at recent major fraud cases, um, ones that we've seen in the news, financial e-discovery plays a large part in how these schemes were caught, or even the lack of financial e-discovery may have been a contributing factor in how the schemes were able to be completed and gone unseen for so long, such as, um, you know, as mentioned, COVID-19 unemployment scams and PPP loan fraud. Todd, you were instrumental in uncovering the truth of Washington State's largest Ponzi scheme. Can you give us some background on this case first off and uh, like your role in it and how the investigation sort of came to fruition? Yeah, you bet. So um, in addition to being a, a CPA and a former auditor, I'm also a certified insolvency and restructuring advisor just means we work, uh, CIRAs work in and around bankruptcy and, and out of court workouts. Um, uh, on a certain matter that, that came uh, to my partner and my attention back a number of years ago, um, it was chapter 11 bankruptcy case, um, group of real estate investment funds in the Pacific Northwest. Um, there was some allegations and some litigation from institutional investors into these real estate funds um, that, that really pushed the owner uh, and promoter of these funds into a bankruptcy uh, situation. The bankruptcy court appointed uh, an independent trustee who was my business partner at the time. And we walked in to this group of, of real estate investment funds, not knowing what to expect. There was allegations from various creditors um, as part of the last economic crisis. Um, the promoter of the funds stopped paying interest and said that there was time that was needed. That didn't make sense to investors given the balance sheets that they've been provided, both audited and unaudited. And just a couple of days into the case, uh, the promoter of the funds outright admitted that half the assets on a $200 million balance sheet didn't exist, that there was no value. It was a relatively simple balance sheet with mortgages receivable on the asset side and investor notes payable on the, on the liability side. With that comment uh, that half the assets didn't exist, so the course of the project changed quite a bit. Um, FBI and Department of Justice got immediately involved from a prosecution standpoint. And ultimately, that was our first insight into what was going to be a very large forensic exercise of having to go back and recreate the books and records directly from bank statement evidence. We could not rely on the internal books and records. They were totally beyond repair. Um, the perpetrator, Darren Berg, admitted that 
um, and thankfully didn't waste our time trying to recreate or fix something that was ultimately unfixable. He also got uh, a number of clean audit opinions. Um, those audits, those audited financials were used to bring in additional um, investors. Um, those financials showed a profitable and solvent company when it was frankly anything but. I ended up with tens of thousands of pages of bank statements. Um, same thing that the FBI uh, forensic team um, was, was having to do uh, as well on behalf of the Department of Justice and the, and the prosecution of Darren. That took an incredible amount of time to extract out all of the transactions, make sure that there was no missing data, there was no wrong data, there was no duplicate data, and uh, we had lots of other dragons to slay uh, at, in the bankruptcy process. Um, there was statute of limitations breathing down our neck. Um, there was assets to secure, interviews to conduct, um, uh, lots of different actions that needed to be taken and a, a large administrative exercise of being able to get at the data for where money came and where it went over uh, a couple dozen legal entities and 50 or 60 different accounts was just not top of, of mind, but an absolute requirement. And that database that ultimately was produced was used for claims verification. It was used for clawback analysis for investors that got in and got out of the funds with a, with a profit. Um, you can't profit off of a Ponzi scheme. So those profits needed to be clawed back and, and litigated or settled. Um, DOJ was using the database for ultimately their, their prosecution and restitution calculations. We were using it to identify uh, recipients of funds that, that didn't have a legitimate business uh, use for uh, receiving those funds and needing to go chase after that. It helped us identify how yachts and jets and homes were purchased. Um, ultimately, it was investor money, but you need the data uh, and you need the reconciled data to be able to establish all of those things. And that was uh, a fundamentally um, a difficult, laborious, expensive task um, that uh, you know we at, at Validate have built tools to really automate and accelerate. Wow, what an incredible undertaking <laughs> that must have been. Um, thank you for for sharing that. This is it was a, mem it was a memorable few years. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, this is sort of separate. I didn't get to ask before. Was this before or after um, you founded Validate Financial? Uh, yeah, the Ponzi scheme, uh, the Meridian Fund Ponzi scheme came most certainly before Validate, and it was really out of my pain uh, involved in getting at the data in, in a largely manual uh, process. It, it, from coming, having spent some time in the technology world, I really had looked around for tools um, and technologies that could accelerate what I was looking to do, basically transform a huge digital pile of PDF uh, subpoena responses 
into a fully reconciled database. I surveyed the market in terms of uh, tools and technologies that could assist and really came up short in terms of what I was looking for and thought that there might be a, an opportunity uh, out there to develop uh, a, a product and a system um, in use by fraud and forensic professionals in a whole variety of, of cases. And we've certainly seen lots of different use cases, some of which, some of which I had conceived of uh, a number of years ago, but um, whether it's Medicaid fraud, matrimonial disputes, bankruptcy or state receiverships, uh, outright Ponzi schemes, um, federal equity receiverships, there's just so many different um, niches within the fraud and forensic community where the need to understand where did money come and where did it go sourced directly from evidence is, is applicable. So most certainly the Ponzi, the Ponzi case that I was referring to came before launching the, the concept and the product that we've built at Validate. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, most, most things come from necessity, don't they? <laughs> right. Um, so right now, some, if not most, uh, examiners use legacy OCR software to speed up their investigative process, but you've called for even more advanced financial e-discovery. What are the shortcomings of the current tools being used? Yeah, I think if, if we're going to say most, I think most are actually still doing the manual entry that Todd referred to there. So, I, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of my fellow CFEs out there that are carrying the scar tissue of having, you know, PDF up on one screen and transcribing <laughs> it manually into a spreadsheet. It's, it's brutal. Um, but, you know, when we speak to people in the industry, it is unfortunately still uh, a, a common practice, particularly at small scale. We just want to tackle it and get going. But, you know, it's hardly a, an effective use of, of professional skill sets. Uh, where, as, as you said, where, where folks have started to dip their toe into the um, toolbox a bit, uh, it'll be with uh, OCR software or, or optical character recognition. You know, that's a technology that's been around a few decades now. It does basically do what it says on the turn. It'll, it'll recognize a digital character from, from an image. Um, but it will just return that digital character. Um, you know, it, it doesn't know that a number is a date or a dollar amount, uh, whether a letter is part of a name or, or part of a description. Um, and, you know, they're, they're only as good as, as the image they're reading. So they're, they're very effective on like a native image. But the moment that native image gets photocopied or scanned in in some way, you start to lose some of that confidence in, in the result that's been returned as was that a six or was it an eight, uh, etc. So there is using those tools still a lot of work that has to be done until you can have any degree of confidence uh, in your analysis based upon those types of results. If you're going to go to the next a level of uh, tool set, then you'd be looking at that would typically involve templates. Um, again, it's an effort to try and uh, put some structure around the data that's coming out, but they really do have their uh, constraints and the scalability. So typically you're still required to visit every page, perhaps drag a box over the data that you're wanting extracted. Um, if if it's a, a template that has been, you know, designed like a financial institution, you know, if that institution moves their logo 
you know, uh, uh, half a centimeter to the right, that whole template breaks and it needs editing again. So there's definitely constraints that come even with, with, what, with solutions that involve templates. And just to add on to that, I mean, the reality is, as fraud and forensic professionals, we often get what we get. Uh, and those, those files uh, can often be compromised. I mean, we, you can see handwritten notes on statements. It may be something that gets pulled out of a file cabinet or a dumpster dive. Uh, the condition of the documents that you get may be less than ideal. And when you're talking about OCR or OCR with templates, as soon as you start to inject in handwritten notes uh, or lines uh, through the statements, um, you really will see a degradation in terms of the output of, of the OCR that's out there. So having tools that allow you to work with the data that you get, um, even though it may not be in perfect condition, is, is critical. The last thing you want to be doing is using a tool, paying for a tool, getting trained up on a tool that ultimately you spend just as much time, if not more, cleaning up and rectifying lower quality data uh, than it takes to just manually key it in. Exactly, exactly. We're sort of, um, <laughs> we're, we're playing that game of telephone with data at this point, right? Where you have to rely on, um, you know, how, how trustable is the tool in terms of getting me the correct information or, um, yeah, yeah the, the, the verification, the reconciliation, the triangulation to ensure that the data that you're getting extracted out of uh, various documents is, is accurate, is absolutely critical when we're talking about expert witnesses or any kind of litigation effort where the, the evidence and the reporting, the analysis that sits on top of that evidence, the integrity of that evidence needs to have controls uh, built in place to ensure that it's that it's accurate and and reliable. Otherwise, um, the the conclusions and the reports that get written based on that are certainly subject to a pretty rough cross examination. So we talked about you know the shortcomings of the current tools being used. What would these new tools look like for CFEs? Well, when it comes to follow the money projects, cases, matters, um, you're really needing to take the extraction up to that next level of having tools or methods in place to identify missing data. Uh, is there a, a missing gap in the statements that we've received? Uh, is there duplicate data? Is there wrong data? It could be a missing page. It could be a redacted uh, transaction or group of transactions. So having prompts and cues in place in software tools to identify missing duplicate and wrong data uh, is critical, uh, both to the, the integrity of the data and also the efficiency of the process, where you need to spend your time, what issues that you need to address. And the reality is, if it can go wrong, it will in fraud and forensics as it relates to evidence. These missing duplicate and wrong data is something that we consistently see professionals uh, having to navigate around. Um, so you're looking for tools that can, can help accelerate that. 
once you've got reconciled transactions, um, you're going to want to start to do things uh, with it. That may be normalizing the, the counterparty, um, the payor and the payees. When you see a bank statement and, and funds are going out or coming in, who is it going out or coming to and being able to normalize the names uh, for, for those beneficiaries or payors or payees. Usually the next level is starting to create a forensic general ledger or uh, labeling or categorization, whatever you wanna call it, basically grouping like-kind transactions together. So on the inflow side, here's investor deposits or customer uh, receipts or draws on a line of credit. On the outflows, here's money spent on payroll or purchasing of assets, uh, et cetera. So being able to group those like-kind transactions together and be able to elegantly report. And ideally, there's a lot of, uh, we've all heard of a lot of movement into the visualization um, side of, of the world, whether it's uh, being able to understand relationships between uh, email correspondence or uh, Twitter feeds, uh, et cetera. There's a number of pretty sophisticated tools out there. Um, that exist, being able to do that with the flow of funds. Um, that also requires that you identify transfers. So money moving between accounts, whether that's just in all in a single currency like US dollars, or whether you're moving uh, a potential target is moving money from US dollars to euros to pounds to yen and being able to trace those funds even though they're in different currencies and different denominations, being able to understand how those funds moved. Um, so those are just some of the things that as new tools and technologies are emerging, you're starting to see the automation uh, and the application of those kind of tools. I'd, I'd also add in here, you know, if we're talking about how new tools are looking, um, you know, the way that functionality that Todd has just described is actually delivered is, is worth considering. And by this, I mean, looking at cloud hosted solutions, you know, software as a service or SaaS, you know, that's, it's really game changing the way that this functionality is being delivered now. There's no more software to install locally on your laptop or computer, you know, new features as they're developed are seamlessly launched. You're not uh, having to install updates um, worry about security. It's kind of integrated and built and delivered uh, over your browser now. Um, so the best practices are all inherently there and deployed. Even backing up your data, you, you know, the, as, as an investigator and examiner, you're abstracted away from that now. Um, you can really, it's kind of taking that IT support uh, piece away from your working week and, and getting focused on, you know, your, your primary daily duties. Um, and then also, you know, innovative, you know, where, where it's, it's, it's less bleeding edge now and more, you know, artificial intelligence, you know, more specifically a subset of that machine learning is really getting applied to many um, data challenges where, where scale is involved. So I would encourage uh, CFEs to really look for some of these attributes and solutions uh, when, when they're out there looking. Exactly. We're seeing, um, we're seeing less and less limitations to what we can do um, as long as we're, we're willing to take advantage of the tools at hand, right? Mm -hmm. So for CFEs who are looking to advance their tool set, 
what are some tools that you would recommend or even tips for how to identify the right tools for them? I'd really advise um, taking a look out there at products uh, like Validate. There's others that have been around, other tools that have been around for a, a longer period of time, just in terms of understanding what is currently available and doing that underwriting and evaluation before you have uh, that, that big case with the huge deadline. Now's the time to be adding those additional arrows in, in your quiver, whether that's starting to think about recruiting, training, getting your team up to speed, given this is a counter-cyclical industry and that it's a boom or bust cycle uh, oftentimes. And this labor market's incredibly difficult. We're looking at uh, unemployment rates at, I just looked it up, 3.6% uh, right now as of, as of June, 2022. Um, being able to recruit and train and retain those teams are very difficult and labor is not cheap out there. So beginning to start thinking about uh, the, the team members that you'd want uh, on your team as you grow. And then looking at maximizing the value of that, of that team that you, you do have by using tools and technologies for the, the lower level of, as I, we've been talking about data extraction and, and verification and, and validation. So really upskilling uh, your team to challenging and stimulating roles and responsibility versus just grinding through tremendous, tremendous amount of data and uh, the QA uh, thereof. And, you know, from a pricing standpoint, you're going to need to, as you're evaluating tools, you're going to need to think about something that ultimately fits you and your client's business needs that need to align the cost of your tools with the reality of your company's cash flow and, and client needs. There's a whole variety of models that are out there that we've all seen uh, for different, different software packages, whether that's a, a traditional per seat per year to a, a variable on-demand cost um, to more traditional annual enterprise licenses uh, with X number of users or perhaps unlimited users. Um, you know, in large part due to the, the cloud and, and SaaS software as a service, sophisticated tools that were, that either didn't exist or if they perhaps only existed at very large firms, um, given the cost and complexity, either built in-house um, or, or sourced uh, with a very expensive license, those tools are increasingly now available to all fraud and forensic teams, including whether we're talking about a boutique firm with several dozen professionals down even to single owner uh, professional shops. So price and cost structure is always one of those things that you'll need to take into consideration um, to make sure that there's, there's alignment uh, thereof. Exactly. Well, thank you for that. Um, that is a ton of great info for people to take home and hopefully start integrating new tools into uh, their, their anti-fraud toolbox. And of course, thank you both so much for joining me today. Um, this has been a wonderful conversation and I'm so glad that we could get together for it. Thank Thanks, you. Rihanna. And thank you for listening. 
You can find this podcast along with all other episodes of Fraud Talk on acfe.com, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This has been Rihanna Scoggins signing off.